All right, we are back in Romans chapter 6 this week. Uh, we had a couple weeks off just due to various things and ministries around the church. Uh, so being that it's been a couple weeks, uh, I'll back us up a little bit when we read tonight. Our focus tonight is going to be Romans chapter 6, verses 19 through 23. Uh, but I want us to start reading in verse 14 just to give us the context. Again, since it's been a couple weeks since we've been here in Romans. All right, our focus will be chapter 6, verses 19 through 23. Please follow along as I start in verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Now, verse 19, this is where we will study tonight. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. All right. We're excited to get in here into God's word. All right. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that we have your word. We thank you that we can be here tonight, that we have the freedoms to be here. Uh, Lord, that we don't need to hide in fear. Lord, I pray that you would bless our time this evening, that you'd be honored and glorified, that you would speak to us your truth. Lord, I pray I would not get in the way of your message, of your truth, of your gospel, of your word. But God, you would use me, even in my weakness, to present your truth. God, all to your glory and your praise. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, in this passage, we really see two different paths, as we have a lot in chapter 6. One path in which the Christian was once on, and we see a new path that the Christian is now on. And the first path is the path of sin, which is our natural path apart from Christ. And this leads to destruction. And the new path is the path of God, which is only possible through Christ. And this path leads to victory. But before we even dive into talking about these two different paths and the old path and the new path and the path of sin, the path of God, I think we need to ask the question, well, can the Christian who is on the path of God, can the Christian go back to the path of sin? If the Christian's on this 
the path of God, in this analogy, can he go back to the path of sin? And I'll answer that by saying positionally, no. But in practice, yes. And I think this is important to understand, and this is where I think the analogy becomes difficult. Paul gives the analogy of, really of slavery, uh, more so than I think a path, but analogy of slavery to describe a complex theological truth. So complex that Paul even says that he's speaking in human terms because of our natural limitations, right? He says that in verse 19. Either you're a slave of sin or you're a slave of God, you might remember from the last couple weeks. And if you are a slave to sin, then you're living on the path of sin. And if you are a slave of God, then you're living on the path of God. But the question is, can the Christian who's on the path of God go back to the path of sin? And I'll say again, positionally, no. Why? Because these paths are completely different. The path of sin, the path of God are completely different. They, in fact, they go in complete opposite directions. They don't run parallel, but they are completely going the opposite directions. And the Christian is secured in the hands of God and on the path of God. So positionally, he is secure. That being said, the Christian can wander. And the Christian does continue to struggle with sin. Maybe you're a Christian, you know that, and you say, man, it feels like I'm on the path of sin sometimes. That's because in practice we can, and we do wander. But as the good shepherd, Christ never lets us stray so far outside of his reach. He's always there, and he always brings us back. So in position, no. We can't. But in practice, yes. And that's just important for us to understand as we begin talking about this, as we begin looking in depth at these two paths, to remember that if you're a Christian, positionally, you're secured in God. But in practice, sometimes we still stray off the path, do we not? So as we look at these two paths, we will look at the path of sin, the path of God. And the path of sin is the path that every non-Christian is on. And it's the path that every Christian was once on. And when we look at the path of God, the path of God is the path that every Christian is on and the path that the non-Christian is invited to come. All right, so those are going to be the two paths that we're looking at. We'll look at three things, and really they, they uh, contrast each other. They compare each other. We're, we're going to see the differences of these two paths. First, we look at the path of sin. We'll look at three elements of the path of sin before we get to the path of God. The first element is this. The path of sin leads to more sin. The path of sin leads to more sin. It says this in 19b. It says, for just as you once present your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. This is the destructive nature of sin. It's that it gets worse and worse. Guys, sin is... Sin is not content to stay idle in your life. Sin gets in, and it wants to dig deeper and deeper. And it wants to grow and grow. Sin is like a cancer that starts off small and slowly grows bigger and bigger. If you're living in sin right now, and you're, and you're leaving it unaddressed, don't think that it's just going to go away on its own. It will likely lead to deeper and more sin. 
And Paul describes being a slave to, he says, impurity and lawlessness. And impurity refers more to that inward depravity. Your heart, your motive, your inner being is wrong. It is against God. It is impure. And lawlessness refers more to the outward sinful actions. It is acting in wickedness. But it's that outward action. Right? We, we, we all have impure thoughts and motives. But sometimes we can keep it inside, right? We, and we don't act on it. Like we, we, we think something, but we don't say it out loud. Right? We, we have these bad thoughts, but we, we don't always act on it. I'm not saying that's good to do that. But what I'm saying is that lawlessness is acting out on it. Lawlessness is acting, living as if there is no law. Living like God's word and his law means nothing. Living as you please, not as God pleases. And what does this slavery of impurity and lawlessness lead to? Does it lead to joy and happiness? Does it lead to victory? Does it lead to fulfillment and satisfaction? Right? If we continue to live and we're slaves to impurity and we're slaves to, to lawlessness, does it lead to these things? Does it lead to fulfillment and satisfaction? Because that's what we're promised it will lead to. And that is what we believe and we hope that our sin will bring us. We hope it's going to bring us joy and happiness. We hope it brings us fulfillment and satisfaction. But instead, God's word says it leads to more lawlessness. It's a continual increase of lawlessness. It's a downward spiral of more and more sin. It is wickedness that leads to more wickedness. That's the promise. That's the fruit that we get. Take, for example, Psalm 1, the very first psalm and the very first verse of the first psalm. Psalm 1.1. We see a progression of wickedness. From the one that is outside of God. Listen as I read Psalm 1 1. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinner, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Did you catch that? First, he walks in the counsel of the wicked, then he stands in the way of sinners, and finally, he sits. In the seat of mockers. You see, they become more and more settled and comfortable with sin. First they walk. They walk and they're like, well, yeah, you know, I don't know how I feel about this. I'm just kind of walking through. You know, I probably shouldn't be here, but I'm, I'm walking. But they become more settled. And so what? They stand. They're not walking. They're not moving now. Now they're standing. And then they become more settled. And what? They sit. It's more permanent. Do you see the progression of that downward spiral of sin? They walk, then they stand, and they sit. How comfortable are you with your sin? Do you walk with sin? Maybe you get more comfortable. Do you stand with sin? Maybe you get more comfortable. Maybe you sit with sin. You see what I'm saying? What is your relationship with your sin? Do you have a hostile relationship with your sin? Do you have a violent relationship with your sin? I hope you do. I hope your relationship with your sin is violent. Jesus says if your hand causes you to stumble, what? Cut it off. That's violent. 
Do you see the sin in your life and you say, man, I want nothing to do with this. Like, get away from me. I hate you. I'm not not walking here with you. I'm not standing here with you. I'm not sitting down with you. Like, get away from my life. Is that your relationship with your sin? Are you willing to make radical sacrifices in your life to rid the sin that is within? Or are you comfortable with it? Maybe you say, yeah, I don't want it, but you really do. Maybe you sit down with it. You feed it. You're kind to it. You're close to it. You leave it alone. You hide it. As a result, you find yourself going deeper and deeper into this sin that was once just on the surface. And now you're just lost in it. Lawlessness that leads to more lawlessness. Sin leads to more sin. Sin is progressively wicked. That's what he's getting at here. So first he says that the path of sin leads to more sin. Then he says that the path of sin is free from righteousness. It's free from righteousness. Look at verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. That's kind of an interesting thing to say, isn't it? Like, what are you talking about, Paul? What do you mean when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness? How is the non-Christian free in regard to righteousness? It's kind of weird. The non-Christian thinks they're free in many ways in which they're not. Remember? Again, we talked about this early in chapter 6. They think that they're, they're not bound by God's law. They're like, yeah, whatever. I, you know, if, if I'm not bound to his law. The non-Christian thinks that they can just live their life however they want, without consequence. No problem. I, I'll just live my life. doesn't matter. The non-Christian, they sometimes will pity the Christian for, for being bound by God. Like, oh, you're a Christian. You have all those rules. That's too bad. I get to do whatever I want. They believe that they're free. The non-Christian is deceived into thinking they're free when in reality they're bound. They're more bound than anyone. But in this way, I'll say they are free. Why would I say that? Because that's what Paul says, and I can't argue with them. Okay? So in this way, they're free. They are free from righteousness. What do you mean? In the sense of their master is sin. Not righteousness. They're slaves. They're slaves to sin. But they're free from righteousness. Righteousness is not their master. They cannot obey righteousness. They cannot obey God. They are enslaved to sin. And they are bound to serve their master called sin. Not righteousness. They can't please God. They cannot respond to his grace unless redeemed. Unless purchased and set free from the chains and the bondage of sin. Now, the non-Christian knows between right and wrong. It's written on their hearts. Remember Romans 2.15? Like, it's written on their hearts. They know what's right and wrong, but they cannot worship God with their heart because they have a heart of stone. It's, it, it, it's not just that they may not, but they cannot. They cannot worship God. They are free from righteousness. Douglas Moo, he wrote, quote, For Paul makes it clear that those outside Christ, to varying degrees, can recognize right and wrong, but the power to do the right and turn from the wrong is not present. 
all are under sin, chapter 3, verse 9, and therefore incapable of doing God's will, end quote. The non-Christian is powerless to please God. They are powerless to worship him. Why is it then? Why is it then that Christians are so surprised when they see sin in the world? Why, why, would, why would we be surprised at that? Like, in a sense, it's almost foolishness to preach good works and, and, and reform to non-Christians. You understand? They cannot change their living until God changes their hearts. So what are we trying to do? Like, what do we expect from the non-Christian? That they act like Christ? No. They have a heart of stone. The Bible says they cannot please God. They, they, they can't please Him. They can't worship God. They are free from righteousness. Now, is it good to tell the non-Christian, hey, don't murder? Like, yes. Like, it's good not to murder, right? It, it, there's benefit to living in the way in which God designed us. Whether you're non-Christian or not, we're all created in the image of God. And so, yes, there's benefit in the non-Christian not just living in sin. But there's no value. There's no spiritual gain. And there's no worship, which is the purpose of our life when it's done from a heart of stone and chains of sin. So, Christian, why? Why laugh at the non-believer when we hear about their worldview? Why scoff at the way of living? Why be so surprised and so appalled by their sin? Do you expect anything different? Do you expect that you would be any different had it not been for the grace of God? Don't be surprised, Christian, of the sin of the non-believer. And also, Christian, don't mock the non-believer. Don't look down at them in pride. And don't make it your life goal for, for the non-believers in this world to, to conform to your worldview and your way of living. Like, well, if I just get all, all of my, my non-believing family and friends to, to, to live in this way, to live in the Christian way, then it'll be good. Don't make that your life goal. Make it your life goal to glorify God by reaching the nations and making disciples of Him. Make it your life goal to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to let His Holy Spirit be the one who changes, not you. They cannot do any good unless God gives them a new heart. And you're not giving them a new heart. Be faithful with what he has given you to do, which is preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we, we pray so hard that God would change people's actions when we should be praying that God changes their hearts. Maybe we need to pray that God changes our hearts. Now, if you are not a Christian, do not think that, that you need to become more righteous before you come to God. Okay, non-Christian, do not think that. You can't. You're free from righteousness. You, you can't be righteous before you come to God. Like you are incapable of doing God's will and worshiping Him. What you need is the transformation of the heart. And that only comes by the grace of God. Not by your works. Don't seek to do more good in this world. Seek Christ and His righteousness. 
and faith in him and repentance of your sins. So we see that the path of sin leads to more sin, that it is free from righteousness, and lastly for the path of sin, it results in death. It results in death. He says this twice. He says at the end of 21, he says, for the end of those things is death. And then he says very, in a very famous verse, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Okay, it's a very famous verse, 23, <clears throat> one you're probably very familiar with. And at first glance, and I think most of the time when it's quoted, we typically think of death when he says, for the wages of sin is death, usually we think of that the death we think of eternal death we think of final judgment we think the wrath of god we think hell like this is the death that that you're going to get and while there's truth to that there's definitely truth to that and probably some implication here i'm not sure that that's the main point of what he's saying here i think death here has to do more with the present life not necessarily future i think it still has to do with eternal death but the emphasis being on the present effects of our eternal death. How we're affected by that even today. The reason for that is twofold. First is the context in which Paul is writing in regard to what? The present life and how the Christian is living in light of his freedom from the slavery of sin. He's talking about present implications, not future and secondly, the word for wages here is a very specific word that means daily food ration. Actually, literally, it means fish ration that is given to the Roman soldiers for his service. Like, okay, the Roman soldier, okay, here's your daily fish ration. That's the word that he's using here for wages. It does not refer to the large payment given to the soldier at the end of his service. But instead, specifically, his daily payment. I think the main implication is the present state. Not the future state. Although I do think that a secondary point is that future death to come, and I'll explain why later. But just as we talked in chapter 1, if you remember from way back then, Paul is talking about that we can experience a small, tiny flavor of the wrath of God here on earth through the destructiveness of our sin and the removal of God's common grace in our lives. That as we continue down a path of sin, we continue to experience the consequences of our sin. Maybe this will help you picture it. I don't know how long ago, maybe within 10 years, so probably, probably close to around 10 years ago or so, uh, I went to the dentist. And the dentist said, I can see just by your teeth that you grind your teeth at night. And I can see that, that your, your teeth are not in the right shape, but you can see where my bottom teeth and top teeth have been connecting at night and have been grinding. And you're filing down your teeth. And I, I, you know, I didn't know. I, mean, I was getting headaches when I woke up sometimes in the morning and my jaw was hurting, but I didn't really know what was going on. And I said, yeah, you're, you're grinding your teeth. I can see the damage that you're doing. Because what's happening is your teeth are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Like your teeth aren't meant to be grinding against themselves. They're supposed to be eating food, right? And so as a result, what? You're damaging your teeth. And the longer they, this goes unaddressed, they're telling me this, the longer that you just keep grinding it, like we have a solution. You can get a night guard and you'll save your teeth. But if you don't, if you just let this go unaddressed, then it's just going to get worse. 
And eventually you're just going to grind your teeth to a powder. And then you'll have no teeth. And then you'll just... <laughs> and you imagine with no teeth? That would be kind of weird. And then you have to get all these fake teeth. Okay, I know someone who had to get all their teeth replaced because they grinded their teeth down to nubs. Okay, so it, it's real. And so they're like, so I was like, okay, I'll get the night guard. You know what I mean? Like, I, I have to do it. I can't just grind my teeth away. Now, why do I say this? I think it's the same with the path of sin. That when we go against our design and we go further and further down this path, it leads to more and more destruction. If I just let it just keep going, I'm, you know, I'm just going to keep grinding my teeth. I'm not going to listen to the signs. I'm not going to listen to the sign that my teeth say when I wake in the morning, that kind of hurts. Or my head say, man, I got a headache. Or the dentist say, hey, guess what? If you keep doing this, it's going to end very poorly. It's going to end like this. But hey, here's a solution. You can do this instead. And I say, nah, never mind. I'm just going to keep doing it. That would be foolishness. And it's the same way with our sin. God in his great discipline. In his great grace, he disciplines us or he removes us from that path. But if we ignore that, if we ignore the signs of God, like if I were to ignore the dentist and all the other signs, and we just continue down this path of sin, we will see the damaging effects of our sin. And as those in chapter 1, we too may experience the flavor of God's wrath or eternal death here in the present. But this is just a flavor of what is to come. What is to come surely is eternal death. What is to come, what, what, what is the end result of this path of sin is the complete removal of God's grace. It is eternal torment and anguish. It is gnashing of teeth. It is the separation from God. Ultimately, all non-believers will be cast into the lake of fire. That will be their destination for all of eternity. And at that point, there is no hope of changing your destination. That's it. For all of eternity. Forever. And guys, I want to be very clear. This is, this, is, this is not made up. This is not just some... Some fairy tale, bad story, uh, uh, a scare tactic or anything. Like this is reality of the result of the path of sin. And how did all this come about? Through the wages of your sin. It's something that you personally earned. It is your wage. Your wage is not eternal life. You don't earn eternal life. You don't earn God's love and favor. The only thing you and I earn is God's eternal wrath. There's no difference in, in that regard between the Christian and the non-Christian. You understand that? Christian, non-Christian, we both earn God's eternal wrath and nothing else. That's the same. Every single one of us has earned our wage is God's eternal wrath. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that the non-Christian will be receiving God's eternal wrath for all of eternity. Whereas the Christian has been pardoned from this. Why? Because Christ took that cup of wrath on the cross. Did Christ earn that wrath on the cross? No. You did. I did. But Christ took it on our behalf, Christian. Did you earn the righteousness of Christ? 
Did I? No. Christ did. It's his righteousness. And he gave it to us. Crediting to our account. If you are not in Christ, the eternal wrath of God that you have earned is waiting for you to receive for all of eternity. That is the fruit of your sin. That is the result. That's the end of the path of sin. But there's another path. And that is the path of God. We'll compare three aspects of the path of sin to the path of God. The first is that it leads to sanctification. In the path of sin, we see that it leads to more sin. In the path of God, we see in contrast that it leads to sanctification. We see this in verse 19c and verse 22b. Okay? Uh, but you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification. The Christian is no longer a slave of impurity and lawlessness, like we saw, that leads to more lawlessness, right? But instead, the Christian is a slave of righteousness that leads to what? That leads to sanctification. And the word for sanctification, it could be translated holiness, it leads to holiness, but because of the tense, it would actually be translated the process of being holy, the process of becoming holy, which is what? Sanctification, right? So ESV, I think, has it right. This is what God's path, the path of righteousness, leads to sanctification, the process of becoming holy. It is to live a life that is increasingly God-centered and increasingly world-dismissing. To be holy means to be set apart, to be set apart from the world and to be set apart to God. That your life, Christian, is looking less and less like the worldliness of this age and it's looking more and more like that of Christ. See, being on the path of God, being a slave of righteousness, produces fruit that leads to sanctification, becoming holy, as we read in verse 22. The fruit that you get leads to sanctification, verse 22. Holiness is conforming then what? To the will and the character of God. Well, that's great. How do we know the will of God? Where, where, where can we find the will of God? Where, Robbie? The Bible. Yeah, in the Bible. Good. Right? And what? So what happens? And the Christian begins desiring his will. The Christian then begins living according to his will that we see in his word. And the Christian's character changes. It begins to change. He's putting off sin in his life, and he's putting on the character of God. And part of that sanctification as we see in verse 21, is being ashamed of your sin. Look at that in verse 21. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? A real sign of genuine, genuine repentance is the shame of your own sin. Because what? The Christian wants no part of his sin because it's shameful, because it goes against God. It goes against his greatest love. Why do I want that sin? It's gross. Do you ever think back, Christian, and think, oh, I was so disgusting. Like, how could I live like that? How, why, I, man, I can't believe it. I, 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 was, I used to talk like that. I, used to, I treated that person this way. Man, that sin, and it's, just, and it's disgusting. You ever look back in your life and think like that? Lord willing, years from now, you'll be able to look back at your life today and say the same thing. 
Why? Because you haven't made it yet. Right? Don't think that you have. The Lord has worked in you and is continuing to work in your life now. Do you hate your sin? Are you ashamed of your sin? Turn from your sin. And turn to Christ. The path of God leads to sanctification. And it is by His gracious hand that He makes us holy unto Himself. We see that the path of God leads to sanctification. But next we see that the path of God is free from sin. And compared to the path of sin, remember the path of sin is free from righteousness. Well, what about the path of God? It's free from sin. Verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God. Again, this has been a huge theme throughout this chapter, so we won't belabor the point. But he does bring it up again here, that the Christian is free from sin. Now, it's still very much possible for the Christian to sin. In fact, the Christian will sin, yes? But the Christian is no longer bound by sin. The Christian is free from the tyranny and the bondage of sin that once tied him down. The Christian no longer submits to sin as his master, but is now free from its reign and its rule. And in being set free from sin, God has given you purpose. And that purpose is not to use your freedom to sin, but that purpose is what? To be free to live for him. It's like when God commanded Pharaoh, right, through Moses, to let my people go, right? He said, let his people go to Pharaoh. And the purpose of freeing the Israelites from slavery, from, from Egypt, was, according to Exodus 7:16, that they may serve me in the wilderness. You see? God set them free to serve him. In the same way, God frees us from our slavery of sin so that we can be enslaved to him and live in righteousness for him. That we may serve God. We're not set free so that we would continue in sin. We're set free to serve God and to live for him. So Christian, are are you using your freedom for his purpose? Christian, are you using the freedom to live for God, to serve Him, to glorify Him? Christian, in in our former life, we obeyed sin. We had to. Sin was our master. But now we've been set free from that master, and we no longer need to obey sin. We can say, no, sin. I'm not listening to you anymore. I don't have to. You have no reign over my life. And now we're under a new master. And we're commanded to obey him and to offer up our lives to him. You are now able to do good works. You are now able to live righteously for God. You are now able to live a life that is of worship to him. So do it. Remember before? You couldn't. And the path of sin is free from righteousness. You could not live for God. But now you can. So Christian, use your free life. You're no longer shackled in place, but you are free now to go live for him. So go. Go and live for him. Are you taking your your freedom that you now have to, to live a worshipful life to God? And I'm using that freedom to go watch Netflix. 
I have this freedom now to go. I'm no longer bound. I can go and live and worship and glorify God. And I'm going to coast through life and live as if this is my best life. Are you using the freedom that you now have to make your life as easy and quiet and peaceful and comfortable as can be? Are you using the freedom to live your life for the glory of God in whatever way that may be? The path of God is free from sin. So live freely. You are free to live for him. And lastly, we see that the path of God results in life. The path of God results in life. We see this in 23b. Right? For the wages of sin is death. But what? The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In contrast to death being the result of the path of sin, the Christian receives life as a result of the path of God. you see the difference? When you're in the path of sin, the path of God? This eternal life starts at the beginning of conversion. Again, having the present in mind here. Not just the future, but the present. Christian, you have eternal life now. From the moment you have a new relationship with Christ, the moment that your chains fell off, you have eternal life. How? How is it that you have eternal life now? Why well, as Jesus said in John 17, 3, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is to know God. To grow in knowledge of him intellectually, yes, to know who God is, to know what he's done, but it's much more than that. It's to know him personally. It is to have a relationship with God. It is to truly know him. It's to no longer be his enemy, but it's to be his friend, to be his child, to be his slave. And in knowing God, we have the greatest thing. We have eternal life. A relationship with God is the greatest treasure in all the universe, in all of eternity. And while we experience this eternal life here and now, this relationship with God, that's not where it ends. It's future as well. We call it, we, we, we say that we live in the already, not yet. Right? That we, we already have eternal life, but it's not yet to come in full fruition. That day will come. One day the dead will raise to life. One day, Christian, we will be face to face with our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, do you long for that day? Like I do. Like, come back now. Like, I'm ready for it. Let's go. We will be in the new heavens and the new earth with God, without sin, in perfect bliss, worshiping God with all believers of all different nations, tribes, tongues. Like, we will be there together for all of eternity. This is the eternal life that awaits us. And you know what? What does he say here? It's been given to us as a free gift. Do you notice that comparison? While death is a wage, eternal life is a free gift. See? He doesn't say the wages of sin is death and the wages of righteousness is eternal life. He doesn't say that. They aren't both wages. It's not that we either earn death through sin or we earn eternal life through righteousness. You're, you, you're going to earn one or the other. 
No. Eternal life is given to us. It's not earned. It's not a wage. It is a gift. And the gift comes from one source. God. From God. God himself. The very one who we've sinned against. The very one who his wrath is upon us. Is the very one who graciously gives us the gift of eternal life. Our eternal life does not come from our own righteousness. It's not a wage that is earned, but it's a free gift that comes from God and God alone. But salvation is not just by God, but it's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? What does he say? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are saved from our sins only by the work of Christ. It is his righteousness that we need. It is his death that, that was in our place. And it is his resurrection that gives us victory. In Christ alone we are saved. And it is on God's path that we receive by grace, through faith, eternal life. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. That's it. The path you are on is headed somewhere. Do you understand that? I'm speaking to everyone in the room. The path you are on is headed somewhere. What is the fruit of your path? What is it leading to? What will be the end result? Some of you are still a slave to sin. In what? That you are not a Christian. Some of you here are not a Christian, and to you, I ask, non-Christian, why do you continue on this path? A path of self-destruction. You know where this path leads, and yet you continue. You know the end, but you turn a blind eye. You look away and pretend like, well, it's not going to be my end. Do you doubt the very words of God? Do you doubt your, your conscience that's weighing in your soul, that's warning you to turn away from your sin? Don't you long for deliverance? Don't you long for freedom? Don't you long for purpose? You will not find any of that in sin. You will not find any of that in the world. You will not find any of that on your own. But it is found in Christ. It is Christ that you need. There is hope in Jesus Christ. And I beg you to turn to him in faith and repentance. Now for those who are slaves of God... Thanks be to him that he has freed you from the bondage of sin and that he has made you a slave to himself. And my challenge to you is this, Christian. Do you live as free? Do you live as free? Do you live as if you are no longer a slave to sin, but instead you are a slave to God? Why do you go back to serving your old master called sin? Why do you wander off God's path and begin to walk down the path of sin again? 
acting as if sin is your master again. Like, okay, sin. Yes, I'll listen. Whatever you say, sin. Why? Acting as if you aren't free, but you still need to obey him. You don't. You don't need to obey sin. You are free to live for God. Why is it sometimes that we take sin so lightly? Why is it that we're so casual about our pursuit for, for righteousness? Why is it that we're so timid to use our freedom for the glory of God? Be bold, Christian. Be bold to live for Him. You are free. So live for God. Who are you a slave to? Who do you live for? Like the parable of the treasure in the field. Have you given all for Christ? Or is Jesus just an add-on to your life? Is Jesus just hell insurance? Is Jesus just good principles to live by? Is Jesus just a, a, a social club to come to? Is Jesus just a, a, an outward reform of actions, but the inside still the same? Or is Jesus your everything? Have you sold all for him? Sold everything for the treasure of Christ? Is he your master? Is he your king? Is he your reason for everything? Is he your God? There are two paths. I urge you, leave the path of sin and walk on the path of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your grace. Thank you, God, that we have eternal life in you. That is a free gift given by you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God, I pray that for all the Christians in this room, that we would live boldly for you, that we would live in our freedom, that we'd be slaves of you and slaves of righteousness that would lead us to sanctification and that would lead to your glory. God, for those in here who are still slaves to sin, Lord, I pray that you would break their chains, that they would come to know you. I give them your grace and your mercy. Lord, I pray you'd be glorified through the rest of our night, that your spirit would continue to work, and Lord, that you would be convicting our hearts for your glory and your praise. In Christ's name, amen.